Hey, before we start, I want to tell you about a new free class called Estate Planning for Aging Parents. Instructor is Liza Hanks. She's the founder of Women in Wills. She and I connected at the end of last year. It's been really exciting and energizing to work with her. She's cool. She wants to make intimidating things like paperwork and estate planning accessible to everyone. It's a free course, takes about half an hour from start to finish, and it's sort of like the Cliff Notes version of all the legal stuff you need to think about when you get older. It's over there at redesigningtheend.com with the other classes we do. If you're interested, maybe sign up, or if you know somebody that would be interested, send them a link. My name is Cindy Pierce. I am an author, an educational speaker, a sexuality educator, and the books I write about, I write about healthy choices for kids and college students and actually adults around sex and hookup culture and social media. I also am a comic storyteller and have several solo shows I have done about my own life and I'm working on a solo show about my mom who passed away in December and this vision as my mom's memory started to decline and it became clear we're heading you know towards the end of her life I started thinking about a show I could do to honor her and also acknowledge what it's like for a vibrant person to then struggle with dementia. Cindy Pierce is the funniest person I know, and I'm really excited about her new show. In about 10 minutes, Cindy's going to tell a really funny story about her time caregiving for her mom. And I love Cindy because she uses humor to talk about just all the hardest topics. And caregiving is a really hard and sensitive topic. Caregiving basically means taking care of somebody you love for free. 43 million Americans are doing it right now. Not everybody chooses to have kids, but we all start out with parents, so caring for an older adult is really common. I don't want my kids with their little kids taking care of that whole sandwich generation. I was living that, you know, caring for my mom and caring for our kids. And it's really hard, you know, I found it hard, like the dog started to bum me out because I felt this responsibility for our kids, this responsibility for our mom, responsibility for these chickens and the dog. So I was felt so overbooked with responsibilities. I, I thought when she died that I'd be devastated and feel, I thought, my God, will I feel like, will I regret this? Not for a second. I, I had a full dose of my mom to the end of her life. And there's nothing I feel like I didn't say or didn't do or could have done differently. Zero regrets. Um, grateful for her long life and the, the, the great times we had. And what is interesting is I worried that when my mom died that I would remember the foggy, compromised, declined person. And the moment she exited this planet, the voice I heard was her sharp, clear, funny, observational humor, her true self that I knew that came back immediately. This is an episode about a program that helps caregivers like Cindy. I just learned about it. It's something that I think more people need to know about, and it's called PACE. It's short for Program for All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly. Caregivers describe PACE as a massive relief. 97% of them who use it would recommend it to others. Here's Robert Greenwood from the National PACE Association explaining how it works. PACE serves nursing home eligible people, and the whole goal of the program is to keep them in the community 
And they, they do that by providing care through an interdisciplinary team and then also having a PACE center that people can go to several times a week in order to re- receive care, to have socialization, do physical therapy. But, but having that interaction and the interdisciplinary team is really important to be able to keep people as independent as possible for as long as possible. And the program is really successful because at any given time, 95% of the people who are enrolled in the program are able to live in the community. A typical day for someone enrolled in a PACE program, there's a van that will come and provide transportation for them. Now, sometimes if a person uh, needs it, there might be an aide that shows up before the van and helps get them ready so that when the van shows up, they'll be ready and, the, and they can get to the van. So usually the van will come fairly early in the morning. They'll go to the center. They'll be able to have breakfast. They'll be able to do the type of socialization that they enjoy. So I know they have, they may have like seated aerobics or seated yoga or music therapy, or they may, you know, be able to play checkers or have a bingo game, you know, whatever, whatever type of things that they like. But in the meantime, if they need to have physical therapy or if they want to have physical therapy, they might have a session during the day for They might do occupational therapy because, you know, one thing about PACE organizations or anybody that age is that there's a constant risk that something may happen that you have to do things differently. You may have a fall. You may have to learn, you know, how to avoid uh, a fall. You may have something that happens so that you're not able to open a jar as easily. So so occupational therapy is also very uh, important to be able to keep people at home as independent as possible for a long time. All of the people I interviewed about PACE love PACE. And it reminds me of the way people talk about hospice. They love it. They're so grateful to have found the program. And I think in both cases, what they love is the coordination of care. It's the fact that everyone communicates on a team. And it isn't the caregiver's job to be sort of this lonely hub of communication for everybody. Sanja Felton is the executive director at Huron Valley PACE, uh, which is really close to where I live. I was talking to her about how she got into it. She had a master's in public administration, but she felt called to do something with a bigger impact. I went back to school to focus on geriatrics. I just love older adults. So I ended up going to U of M, was a geriatric social work fellow. And part of that fellowship, you had to work in Detroit, would be one of your placements. And during that time, also, the, all the fellows had to go and do a tour of the PACE site in Detroit. So at the time, that's the only that was on the only PACE site in um, Michigan mm. at the time. So we toured it. I saw it. I was like, oh, man, this is like crazy. This is what kind of program I want to work in. This is what is needed. I kept hearing stories about people like Sanja who changed jobs or careers to get more involved with PACE. So here's another one. Stephanie Winslow is the executive director of the Pace Association of Michigan, but previously she had been a leader in state government. I've been advocating for Pace since 2008. I worked in the legislature, and so at that time I worked for one of the appropriation chairs, and I did that for a little bit, and then I went over to this side to try to help advocate for Michigan seniors. And, you know, I feel like it's Michigan's best kept secret. And I think that COVID has brought PACE to light and the need for other options for seniors. But if PACE is so great, why haven't you heard of it? Why aren't people you know enrolled and using it? So it turns out there are a bunch of reasons, but 
Here's the disappointing stat of the day. 12 million older adults in the U.S. would benefit from having this interdisciplinary team, a whole team of people looking out for them. And guess how many actually have it? It's 60,000. So like one half of 1%. And the entrepreneur in me is like, all right, let's ramp it up. Let's grow pace 100 times. And so I asked Sanja Felton, you know, why can't you take on 100 times more people? What's holding you back from, from growing in that way? And she gave me four reasons. First is that PACE programs are designed to be small. One of the things that happened with CMS and um, the state, they determine how many participants you can serve. So our cap is 360. The second reason is that starting a new PACE center is time intensive and risky. When you open your doors to PACE, you have to have your staff in place, like social workers, dietitians, your physicians and all so what you're doing is that's a cost that you have up front, even when you don't have a participant, you're not getting paid yet. So there's a lot startup cost. Third, the government puts really tight restrictions on the marketing PACE centers can do. A lot of people just don't know about PACE. As far as marketing and outreach, the state and CMS policies are very restrictive about how we market. Everything has to go through CMS and the state to be approved. And for us being a nonprofit, because we are risk-based and capitated, do we spend, you know, money on marketing or do we spend money on the people we care for? And the number four reason that PACE can't grow 100x is money. 98% of people in this program are paid for by Medicaid. And that means they have less than $2,000 in liquid assets. You got to be poor. So if you qualify for PACE, but you don't qualify for Medicaid, if you have more than $2,000 in liquid assets, then you have to pay $4,500 per month out of pocket to cover the Medicaid part. Sometimes it's more. These people that are in the middle, that if you're just over a penny, you cannot get into our program. I'll give you an example. We had, during the pandemic, a daughter came in here with her mother, right? And when we went through the process, she was just a little over income. And the daughter was like, I can't work because it's during the pandemic. I have a four-year-old that can't go to school. And then my mother has dementia and she has to be here. I can't work. I can't even go to the grocery store because I'm trying to watch someone with dementia and a four-year-old in a store. And it was so sad because this woman was a social worker. She had worked for the state. She had paid her taxes, did what she had to do, but they couldn't get services. So they're just out there. You know, it's not affordable for Mm -hmm. people. So we're trying to change that as well to make it more affordable for people to come to PACE because there is a need. So let's review. You know, there's 60,000 people getting PACE. Who are these people? A lot's got to go right. First, you've got to hear about PACE, even though they can't do any marketing. Then, you have to qualify for services. you got to live in an area with capacity, and you have to be either rich enough or poor enough to pay for it. So that's about 60,000 people in the U.S. today that are using PACE. But the National PACE Association estimates there are 2.2 million people eligible for PACE services who would qualify for Medicaid. And then if you remove the Medicaid requirement, it goes up to 12.4 million Americans who could use PACE. And I think it's a huge bummer and that we should expand access to PACE, not just because people love it, which they do, but also because it saves money. 
because we're paid on a capitated basis and not on a uh, per service basis, but we're also responsible for an emergency room visit or a hospital stay or permanent placement in a nursing home, the financial incentives are perfectly aligned with the incentives of the individual to stay at home and be as independent as possible. From a taxpayer's perspective, we're less costly than your traditional nursing home. And so we save the taxpayers uh, dollars because we're a capitated payment model uh, that works with the state of Michigan, as well as, you know, the folks in Congress. So PACE is a money saver. And for 60,000 people, it's what allows them to walk out the door and go to work or the grocery store. Listen to this definition. See if you can guess the word that it describes. The basic physical and organizational structures needed for the operation of a society or enterprise. Here's one more. The set of fundamental facilities and systems that support the sustainable functionality of households and firms. Those are two definitions of the word infrastructure. And I think it applies perfectly to caregiving because caregiving is a foundational requirement for our households and the nation to function sustainably. This is what I really appreciated about the whole discussion around caregiving being part of infrastructure, whether it's caregiving for children or childcare or for elder care. There's just a recognition that the economics don't work as well in a free market uh, system, that families aren't going to have the resources to pay for the type of care that they want to provide that's going to pay livable salaries to all the caregivers. I think that's been a very healthy discussion because that's really been something that we've grappled with for a long time is how do you make this afford uh, for most people who aren't going to be Medicaid eligible? I mean, historically, it's always been, well, that person just spends down all their assets Mm -hmm. until they become eligible for Medicaid. But what you see over and over again is that people who actually have done responsible planning and may have, you know, may have enough assets or enough assets to provide them an income never become eligible for Medicaid, but they, but they also don't have enough to pay the high price that they would need to pay in a free market system. So I, I do think there's a role there for, for government support in one way or another to help bridge that gap. I mean, because it, it is something that we, that we all need to pay for throughout our lives so that it's available for people at the beginning of their lives when they need it for childcare and at the end of our lives when we need it for senior care. Since we don't have the workforce, we need to care for all the baby boomers that are getting older. And PACE is a proven winner that needs to be part of the mix. I'm going to look for ways to advocate for the expansion of PACE programs, and I hope you'll do the same. Once people realize the value of PACE, people are going to say, why don't we have PACE in our neighborhood? Why don't I have access to PACE? Mm -hmm. And that's really where we'll take off when people start demanding it in their communities. So here's the bottom line. Today, there are 60,000 American families whose lives are better because they have this interdisciplinary team sharing the responsibility of caregiving. But there are 12 million more who need the same thing and providing that infrastructure for them would cost less than not providing it. Well, you let that sink in. Here's one more story from Cindy about life as a caregiver, one of those great caregiving moments. One time I went to massage her and she, we had moved her to bras that were pull, you could pull them over and they were comfortable. They had no hooks. And I pull her shirt off to massage her and I read across right in front of her tits. Her tits are packed in janked sideways cleavage at a full like angle and right across her tits it says jockey. She had her bra 
inside out and backwards. Her tits were packed into the back of the bra. And it was just like, Mom, let's get this squared away. But she had no idea because she was fading out. If you want to hear more of Cindy's stories or learn about her books or check out her new show, go to cindy-pierce.com. Thank you to Sanja Felton from Huron Valley Pace, uh, Stephanie Winslow from the Pace Association of Michigan, and Robert Greenwood from the National Pace Association for sharing their time and stories with me. For more information about PACE, I recommend the National PACE Association's website, especially they have an interactive map that has a ton of great data about coverage in every state. Thanks to Pat Couples and Hotels and Highways for the use of your original music. My name is Brian Hayden. This is Redesigning the End. Thanks for listening.